this is Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we sit down to discuss the essay version of The Alternative in Eastern Europe by Rudolf Bachro. talk about a very interesting character, Rudolf Barrow. I don't know if I'm butchering his name. He was from Germany, specifically East Germany, but the time he wrote this, it's called uh, The Alternative in Eastern Europe. And it's basically a guy's critique of the East German system or of a general Stalinist system and his attempt to lay out a plan for a communist alternative, you know, because he sees the, uh, he, but he calls, actually, he actually coins the term actually existing socialism. And he sees actually existing socialism as being in contradiction with the actual goals of Marx to create a classless society. Yeah. So this dude was, I don't know. I was, I read this dude's Wikipedia before I read this piece and He's a, I don't know, it kind of sketched me out a little bit because he kind of got into like some hippie shit and he got involved with like the Green Party, but it never really went anywhere. And well, let's talk about his biography before we start talking about his uh classic work because his actually his biography kind of gets interesting after he writes this. Yeah, he got locked up for this, right? Yeah, he was writing he he was basically a bureaucrat like in the planning commission i think for the east german regime and so he and he was in east germany for example you had did have a lot of very idealistic bureaucrats who wanted to create a wonderful socialist paradise for their people and they just came up against the limits of the system itself in doing this and rudolf barrow seems to be exactly this kind of guy and so he's just looking at this. And, and one thing about the Soviet Union is that like even the bureaucrats hated the system, which is one reason why they were so willing to overthrow it and restore capitalism is, you know, even the bureaucrats hated the system. And so this is, but Barrow, you know, has a different approach. He doesn't want to have market reforms, but he wants to form a new communist party or a communist league that restores a dictatorship of the proletariat and starts transforming the economy into a communist basis. And he has a whole kind of understanding of historical materialism and the, and the political economy of East Germany that kind of informs this analysis. But anyway, he basically gets locked up by the Stasi for writing this because it's very subversive, obviously. It, you know, says that, you know, the, the party and the working class have are completely you know, alienated from each other, that they basically live in an oppressive society, that they're stripped of democratic rights, and all, all of the things that contradict the lie of the system. Basically. Yeah, so that it's, get, it's based on exploitation. It's not a worker state. Yeah, he basically is saying, listen, like, yes, 
it's it might be the best option for Eastern Europe that's possible given historical circumstances, but it's still not communism and we still need to struggle to have communism. So he calls for a cultural revolution to, um, you know, re to, to establish true communism, but he gets locked up by the Stasi, but his, his critique becomes really popular in Marxist circles and in, in the West as, as well as West Germany and outside of East Germany. And so there's a big international campaign to get him set free. And so he gets released and goes to Germany and he kind of, uh, I think the Stasi kind of broke his brain. Hmm. <laughs> it kind of sounds bad, but no, seriously. Kind of, he kind of became a hippie basically. Like he was a founder of the Green Party and he kind of was an inventor of deep ecology. And he actually had some crypto fasci elements even like, he said that, you know, he was very excited about the possibility of the Green Party and said that, you know, it, it could be the realization of the, you know, the true promises of 1933 and the Nazi regime and stuff like that. So he said a lot of really sketchy stuff. So, yeah, as Jake said, there's kind of a new age woo aspect to his thought. But well, well he also he also like died of like this rare form of form of lymphoma. Apparently, there's also speculation that like they did like re these like irradiated while well, he was under like custody of the Stasi, and that's why that's why he died of that thing in particular. Wow, that's insane. Yeah, I could see. <laughs> hey, look, you get tortured by the government, you become a primo. That's just how it works. I mean, yeah, it's uh, kind of the Ted Kaczynski path, but he actually tried to start a political movement in Germany. But it's just weird that he makes this weird reference to the Nazis. And a lot of um, people who try to connect Nazis and deep ecology often point out this, you know, famous incident of Rudolf Barrow calling the Green Movement, you know, the, the movement Hitler could have been. That does sound Heideggerian. Yes. Yep. Well, well, he develops a very Heideggerian worldview now because he starts... He, he kind of develops this idea more based on, you know, the general alienation of man from nature being the problem rather than class structure. As So he moves from a Marxist to a kind of a, a deep green ecologist and his his mode of thought, I imagine, goes downhill from there. But mm. he's also, you know, he also tries to say that we need like a new spirituality and that there's like a spiritual crisis. So... In his defense, he doesn't come from a, a particularly noble period of leftist history. No, he doesn't. Well, yeah, like he referenced, he sees like the worst of materialism, I guess, in East Germany. Even though East Germany was probably the best Eastern Bloc state you could live in. Like, yeah, it, sound, it sounded so cynical, you know, in in those states. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it was very in, cynical. In like North Korea, even today, you know, there are a lot of. It was people probably because it was the better, like the better off of the eastern bloc states that he was so concerned about materialism mm. and that sort of thing because they were close to replicating the sort of com consumer capitalism of the west the thing that really strikes me about east germany in particular is that it's the only like communist state that arguably was capitalist first uh hungary and czechoslovakia i would counter but yes you have a point well, like it's one of the major ones, I suppose I should say. Like, but it it was a it was kind of like in ruins. Yeah, because of the bombings. Yeah, but nonetheless, you still had industrialization. I actually, I think the Junker class actually wasn't expropriated until 1945. Mm. So, 
Hmm. How many? How many of like the this? Maybe no one knows the answer to this. But I'm just kind of wondering now, like how many of like the technicians and like engineers and stuff were the Allies able to snatch up versus like the USSR? Oh, a lot because uh, they paid more. And yeah. that was one of the reasons the Berlin Wall was built because they had brain drain. They weren't able to keep skilled right, laborers right. because you know you could basically just go work in West Germany if you were East German, no problem. And it became a problem because you could get paid better for tech. You could get trained on the cheap in East Germany and then go work for higher wages in West Germany. So it was, you know, that's kind of what happened. I'm picturing with like the two armies there, like after the initial defeat of the Nazis, it's just like hungry, hungry hippos, but with like intellectuals and technicians and engineers and shit. Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, I just the whole thing, denazification was crazy. But uh, so, yeah, Rudolf Barrow's Mark reading his Marxist work, not his new age hippie work. And I didn't really there's there were maybe some kind of, you know, beginning tendencies of his new age. Well, he was drafted era. into like the junior army corps when the Nazis were falling, like when he was like nine years old. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. And I guess but it's weird because he said that um, joining like the youth like communist league in eastern germany as a teenager was like he basically only did it because of pure pressure and it was like the the one thing that he caved on an instance like that but it's like well, what about that thing where like you were drafted into like the nazi army i mean he was nine years old though i mean <laughs> but they... yeah, I, guess, I guess your parents just tell you hey you gotta... but the thing is like it's on you like... son Anyway, like he, the Nazis. he ends up like getting pressured to become a communist by the state, but then he becomes like more of a communist than the actual state itself, ironically enough. And it's exactly what he calls like um he, I can't remember how he phrases it exactly, but he says the, the contradiction between the proposed ideological values of the state and the actual reality of of the state creates this this contradiction in society for change and so and Tickton attacks him for that as kind of being an idealistic and non-materialistic view of that's another discussion but yeah so uh oh yeah hold on what are you gonna say just the the notion of cultural revolution i'm thinking of the time this was published in late 1977 new left review and that's like hot off the tail of the great proletarian cultural revolution yeah. in China, which lasts until what? Like a year well, before that, like uh, 76. It's like 66 or 76, according to Wikipedia. Well, interesting <laughs> enough, Lenin actually uses the term cultural revolution during his last years when he's kind of struggling against the bureaucracy during the NEP period. And he argues that there needs to be a cultural revolution where um, education and work are united in the countryside and you have promotion of worker cooperatives and literacy campaigns and the, the cultural level of the peasantry and the intellectual level of the population are developed in these mass campaigns, which is kind of similar to actually the borrow's ideas in here. So the term cultural revolution, I think he might be thinking of Mao's China but there's also Lenin's own idea of a cultural revolution as his, you know, kind of policy suggestion for the NEP. But of course, he dies and Stalin ends up in power. So 
Yeah, this was not there's there's actually um two alternatives in Eastern Europe. There's the book, which is really good and I've read, but then there's the um essay that's been pub that was published in the New Left Review. And we read the essay that was published in the New Left Review, which is Barrow basically summarizing his work. Yeah, but Donnie's got the, the six hundred page book in his brain right now. I mean, I you know, I I don't have the best memory, but that's cool. And we did the the whole xenofeminist episode. There's like a book called Xenofeminism. Yeah, we didn't this, we didn't we didn't read it. Yeah, this this is actually a pretty good summarization of the book as well. So let's pop that's off the good. top. Um, yeah, so he starts off by um saying that um he wants to call it a contribution to the critique of socialism as it actually exists. Which I thought itself is an interesting um, concept because, as I think I said earlier, he kind of has this idea that there's no deform. It's not you can't say that it's like a deformation of the true socialist goal, or that you know there's this alternative socialism that could exist. He kind of says that we're kind of stuck with what we have right now. This is you just have to talk about actually existing socialism, not as an ideal system, but as the actual quote-unquote socialist systems are and he keeps on saying that they're not really socialist or communist mm -hmm. but he still calls them actually existing socialism so it's obvious and one of his ideas is this kind of gap between the ideal and the real that exists in socialism yeah because he ends up arguing it's like a, a really like primal sort of class society yeah he, he basically says it's oriental despotism yeah, in so many words. Yeah, he says the socialism which Lenin and um, I mean, with which Marx and Engels foresaw, and which Lenin and his comrades undoubtedly hoped for also in Russia, will come. It must be the goal of our struggle, as it has ever been more. It was more than ever the sole alternative to a global catastrophe for civilization. No one in nowhere in the world have there been yet more first attempts in this direction. For instance, Yugoslavia. So he actually kind of sees Yugoslavia as an example of someone who's kind of going in the right direction, interestingly enough. That makes sense. They had a revolution. You know, they have some autonomy. And they have uh, um, workers. Limited workers control. Yeah. Because there what? actually is a critique of what he calls statism that he brings up in here in Yugoslavia that self-management is counterposed to. But he still seems to think... Yeah, etatism. He still thinks this isn't really going far enough. What, what, does he ever, in like the 600-page book, does he ever comment on Mao's cultural revolution? Um, um, I actually don't remember, and I don't think he does. Why do, you, why do you think that he doesn't take up the subject? Because I think he actually is thinking that this is going to be taken up seriously in East Germany, perhaps, by some leaders. And maybe he'll win some people over, and the Cultural Revolution was not viewed very fondly by people. Mm -hmm. I mean, but that's basically—he's basically calling for a lot of like kind of like people's idea of what the Cultural Revolution was, which is like this sort of mm -hmm. vitalistic yeah. activation of you know the. I think the... he might have had it on his mind. Like he had this—he uh, does have this vision where, um, you know, the people are mobilized against the bureaucracy to change the society and the communism. And so he moves on to defining the post-capitalist societies. And so he says, if he's seeking to define social relations by their proper name, 
He doesn't want to use the concept of socialism, that the concept of statism is too narrow. And so, you know, he uses the term actually existing socialism, which he reluctantly uses. And his point is basically that we still have a post-capitalist society, and he very much rejects the idea of state capitalism and says that you can't actually mm-hmm. understand state capitalism or you can't understand actually existing socialism if you just say that it's capitalism because you're not looking at the actual social relations and dynamics of this society and then from there developing your analysis. Barrow is great. Barrow is great on that. He's it's like, nope, not a deformed worker state. Nope, not state capitalism. Yeah, he's very much against like trying to pigeonhole it into some pre-existing ideal. And he's trying to examine the material structure of the of the system and from there develop something. And yeah. so, you know, and I try to do this myself and it's always people like, so, so what's the system called if it's not capitalist? And I'm always just like, I mean, like why it's just, it doesn't matter that much what label we give it so much as the content of, you know, what we of our critique. And so I don't really care if we call it like bureaucratic socialism or actually assisting socialism. Yeah. I tend to use the term Leninism, but I know that I know why that's, uh, you know, not why whatever everyone uses but yeah I mean, it's it's interesting that he's being like look socialism as it actually exists isn't socialism but whatever it's it's almost kind of like what lenin says in state and revolution he's kind of like look the government just like owning everything isn't socialism but like all right whatever we'll call this part socialism <laughs> like well, and he just uses the term socialism lenin's views on nationalization are actually pretty advanced if you actually read them he's he 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 actually does recognize that nationalization isn't socialism yeah but nationalization under the workers state no even then it's still just a form of confiscation he says that the you know even under a worker state like it's still just a form of confiscation it's it's different from a capitalist state but as he sees it he says a step forward towards socialization which requires an actual transformation of the division of labor and the labor process as well as the development of planning and distribution and stuff yeah so he calls for a cultural revolution and he's arguing that that basically these societies are are trying to industrialize and create modern industrial societies but through a non-capitalist dynamic and part of the problem is that they're actually trying too hard to compete with capitalism on a world level and trying to capture this capitalist dynamic. Well, it's like, he has such an interesting point of view about where Russia was. And like, it kind of ties into the thing I was saying about, you know, oh, like East Germany is the only capitalist country that went to, you know, whatever. But the point being that like, he doesn't even see Russia as, feudal and in his mind feudal yet because that's the sequence he says and in reading these letters i never got the sense that this is what marx thought marx and engels thought this is something that he says on page nine did the russian revolution fit into this perspective talking about um marx and engels vision of communism as proceeding from the abolition of private property in its most developed form Was the old Russian Empire, which was to merge into the Soviet Union, a capitalist country at all, even an undeveloped one? In 1881, Marx and Engels still did not see it as even feudal. In their view, it was semi-Asiatic. 
This was no geographical characteristic, but a precise concept of political economy. <laughs> Racist. Um, for Russia, therefore, the abolition of capitalist private property could not have a great positive significance. Since there was little capitalist private property there and economic life was affected by it only at certain points, the tragedy of the Russian socialist vanguard was that they found a different task to fulfill and practice from that which the that which the influence of their Western European models had suggested to them. The October Revolution was to introduce a completely different process from the Socialist Revolution anticipated in Western Europe. And, of course, I would add here that... I think that's true, right? The I completely mean, different process is, of course, a tributary stage to capitalism. Yeah, it's like a transitional form of the transition to capitalism that takes this weird industrialized tributary stage. Yeah. That like, makes sense? Yeah, like, of course, he sees it as a form of post-capitalism, but we know it's uh, otherwise. I would call it uh, developmental socialism, basically. It's an attempt to develop from a uh, tributary society to a capitalist society or a post-capitalist society using a different using the state instead of the law of value, if that makes sense. Yeah. Trying try to escape the, uh, the problems of the world market through using autarky. We'll have to see throughout the paper if, if this can be like rescued from the uh, Asi the Asiatic insistence, the stuff yeah. about Asiatic mode of well, production. I but, think it's I think if you just sort of separate Asiatic and stop pretending it's unique to like the Orient and just replace it with tributary, and well, understand that feudalism is actually the uh, you know as as we go going back to Samir Amin, like really what he calls semi-Asiatic is tributary, and it is true that. I mean, this, that it was that the Russia was still mostly a tributary mode of production at the time of the revolution. There were elements of capitalism in the cities. And Lenin realized this. He realized that it was a dual revolution and that if the revolution yeah. was isolated, it would become, you know, it would just be, it would become a developmentalist state. And he didn't want that, obviously. And as he, you know, as he gets closer to dying, the reality that's going to become that becomes a dawn on him more, which is why I would distinguish, you know, Leninism from, I just don't want to say that this is what Lenin desired. Even if he does have his ideas about the German post office and his ideas about state capitalism, I still think that like what the Eastern Bloc became is a far cry from what Lenin actually like wanted. Well, yeah. One thing that's important so. to keep in mind here is the lessons from the two world wars, where it suddenly became clear that what wins a war is industrial production, right? And so that was the basis of the entire Cold War. So the the sort of the developmental, the developmental aspects of the developmental regimes were basically an intrinsic necessity that they really couldn't escape. And I mean, that's Trotsky's argument, I mean, Lenin's argument, I mean, just VR, you know, an argument against socialism in one country is that you're always going to have to keep your state militarily competitive on a world level. And so therefore, your only real way to break capitalism as a world system is to take power in large enough of a region where you can kind of launch a beachhead in the world revolution, essentially, and right. essentially position yourself to where you can spread your revolution but that's kind of what seems like self-contradictory about what this guy is arguing because tick 10 points this out too yeah 
like I actually I do I read the Tickton piece right after reading this one and like Tickton kind of crystallized a lot of sort of what I was feeling as I read it. Um but yeah, because okay, you let's say you get the regimes to recommit its resources towards like a mass education campaign and like disseminating information and so on and so forth. Um I mean, you know, if the USSR fell far enough behind, you know, in the arms race, they'd be subject to like foreign incursion, I think, to a certain extent. Although there is, of course, of course, the nuclear question, which changes things. But even so, you know, I think that you have to have like a revolution in Western Europe at the same time. So, you know, you need to basically foment the power of the working class and its commitment to like, you know, actual socialism in order to you know it basically bring the ch- kind of changes that he's talking about in the eastern bloc yeah he also believes that this cultural revolution be can be carried out completely peacefully it's another weird thing that's very weird yeah. considering he thinks that there's a class conflict well no his culture it's it's not so much a class conflict for him as it is he calls it i think we should kind of talk more about his general theory a little bit more because he he doesn't really say that it's he doesn't define classes so much as you have a bureaucracy that monopolizes and concentrates and controls and oppresses and then you have a mass population that's subalternized is what he says he doesn't say that they're proletarianized no well he he explicitly he explicitly says that they're not working class that it's something else it's like a it's like a mass however he says that there is exploitation and so where there's where where there is exploitation where there is you know something semi-asiatic uh where there is you know exploitation relations collapsed into state relations there form some kind of classes but then tickton in his critique points out that Barrow can't actually define the classes. He has to rely on this vague notion of the division of labor creating subalternity in order to avoid the fact that there are not definable classes in the Soviet Union and there are no definable classes in the Soviet Union. Because even if a surplus is extracted from the direct producers, the state has no way of controlling this surplus at, at all and consuming this surplus. So the ruling class is a class that is not able to actually exist as a functioning ruling class. And that's why this bureaucracy is so willing to fall back onto capitalism and just become a capitalist class, as we saw in 1991. Yeah, but I guess my insistence on class analysis is not so much because of a stable ruling class, but because of a more or less stable exploited class. Well, that's the problem is you can say that, you know, there's people who are exploited, but you can't point to the exploiters. You can only point to the most corrupt and, and you know, inept and selfish bureaucrats. Well, but in the end, you really can't define who the exploiters and exploited are, except by pointing to the most, you know, high up level, like police chiefs and political mm-hmm. bureau members. So it's I, very... I think I think he has a pretty I think he has a decent like overall grasp of like the different layers of class in historical materialism and his overall argument and the reason he keeps comparing it to you know Asiatic mode of production is because he thinks there's a very simple class conflict the like the primordial class conflict that basically forms the class axis of the Soviet Union. And it is the intellectual manual labor distinction. 
and well, yeah and i mean obviously like not every you know like poet was a you know the exploiting class or something like that but the people that could successfully navigate the bureaucracy you know more or less were i mean i i guess i don't know i think it's it's just this is I, this is how i read his argument is that basically all modes of production are based on you know they have in the background primitive communism and then from primitive communism you know a, a tributary state develops that politically exploits these primitive communities and there's a patriarchal division of labor that develops and the development of these tributary state societies is based on he uses egypt as a classic example of a society where there's no private ownership in land and capital but there's still a division of labor between the people who do the, the yeah. mental work of planning and controlling society and the people who do the grunt work of producing according to the dictates of these people and he but, says that yeah. this is a much deeper aspect of class society that needs to be overcome it's not simply enough to overthrow bourgeois private property there are deeper parts of class society embedded in the total structure of a mode of production or social formation, or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, let's let's talk about his like greater theory here. He's saying that there's deeper structures than just capitalism that inform the total system, and this includes the skilled and unskilled division of labor and the existence of this division of labor in the state system that dominates the economy means that there still is a a sort of caste-like division within the society that reproduces itself. And he doesn't see it reproducing themselves in definitive classes. He sees it as reproducing a condition of mass subalternity. And so what he sees as a cultural revolution is a kind of cross-class mass revolt against the state, against the condition of subalternity. Yeah, yeah. L let's zoom in a little bit more now. Right, on page 13, he has... A direct comparison here. I'm just I'm going to read this paragraph because I don't know what else to do. Um, in the ancient economic despotism, the state function is almost identical with the management of large-scale cooperation and society's overall life. Marx writes in Capital of the ancient Egyptian priestly caste as the managers of agriculture. We know that the Oriental state bureaucracy and theocracy, with or without a great king at the head, at the head, had private ownership neither of land nor of workers only as a corporation, i.e. as an administrative and ideological state apparatus, did it have power of disposal over the surplus of goods and labor power. The general type of this relationship of domination is the same as in actually existing socialism, and what is involved here is not a superficial analogy, but rather a substantial affinity in the basic structure of the relations of production. Now, he does say it's a relation of domination and doesn't say exploitation, but he does say it's relations of production. Yeah, but I'm trying to say is that it's, it's what he sees as the main problem is not exploitation so much as domination, because he can't point out the exact economic model of exploitation the way Marx can with surplus value and capitalism. He sees he relies more on the idea that the people are dispossessed from political rights and political control over society as the form of inequality and oppression in that society. Yeah, I think it would be worth just reading a, a little bit of the paragraph down here. Uh, so that's the paragraph right before a, a crucial misconception, just the bottom part of the paragraph. 
The primitive community is the primary formation. Above it are deposited secondary and tertiary social formations. In this sense, the relation of the traditional division of labor and the state are secondary formation. They represent the oldest, most fundamental, and most general relation of production of class society. This persists as the original and basic support for all oppression, all exploitation, all alienation of individuals from the totality, from the decline of the primitive community through to our own day. Um, it is only on top of this stratum that the specifically developed class societies of the tertiary formation are erected with the dominance of private property and means of production, i.e. slavery, feudalism, and capitalism, which for yeah. us would just be tertiary and capitalism. Yeah, um, I mean, that's a very interesting theoretical tool. I think. I think that is such a beautiful way of explicating the sort of Engelsian sort of elaboration of historical materialism that when I argue with people who really like the early Marx and who really focus on the state, the capital S state, the concept of the modern state, um, you know, this, this is a theory that they, they hate is that there's a sort of like, I don't know. Well, the point is that the first class societies, the ruling class was literally the state taxing the direct producers. The state yeah. ruling class their own emergence is basically the same phenomena. Does if that makes sense? Like, Ticton accuse like um, doesn't Ticton accuse the author of like basically being an anarchist and arguing against power specifically because of the way he talks about class within actually existing socialism? Yeah, he he kind of accuses him of having this view that the contradiction is between order takers and order givers rather than a contradiction in the actual social relations of production. But he does say you can't abolish like hierarchy. So he's not really an anarchist. Yeah, I think Ticton is being a little unfair there. I can see he what compares, he's saying. He compares him to um, Mach, uh, one of the uh, he compares him to this one guy who was like really anti-intelligentsia, which doesn't make sense because mm. this whole kind of political argument yeah. crux on the intelligentsia being like a revolutionary subject yeah it's ridiculous i want to uh, I, I want to um i wish i because I, if we we're gonna be talking about this much about like oriental despotism i wanted to uh, get like a sound cue where it'd go deck 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 every time we say a veto it. i'm gonna veto that idea <laughs> <laughs> okay um, hard, hard we talk a little bit about <laughs> we talk a little bit about the uh mental manual division of labor and like his his solution is basically like a wide-reaching sounds like an education program essentially for uh the subaltern like in the eastern block is that yeah. is that kind of what he's getting at well the, yeah. before before we can really talk about the solution we we, we kind of skimmed over the problem of subalternity uh, donald you had kind of like motion towards this issue but it kind of makes sense to me that even though that this theory has like a material base at his and like his solution seems to be kind of ideological that he would eventually become the kind of person that's looking for a change in spiritual consciousness because what he talks about here is a real problem and i think that kind of like when you read ticton or when you read like you know descriptions of the ussr in the 70s when you look at contemporary developed capitalism you can kind of see some similar dynamics, which is totally terrifying. <laughs> well, it's just like the total political nihilism, I guess, is what you're getting at. 
Well, the, the the masses and the managers, you know, like dynamic and uh, this. What what is this thing? The the sub subalternity, like people. The, this concept of subalternity is is basically a psychological and identity like effect of a psychological I identity and like behavioral effect of subordination. It's not subordination. It's the effect of subordination. Yeah, it's, like it's a particular kind of alienation that comes from being subordinated to under yeah, sort of like a heavy bureaucracy. Yeah, it's this idea that their development is being blocked by the limitations imposed on them by this bureaucracy, basically. Kind of and learned so dependence. The, the, the contradiction is no longer an exploiting class versus an exploiter class, but the masses of people who are held back in their development by a bureaucracy versus the negative political effects of this bureaucracy. And so he kind of frames it as an ideological rather than class conflict, which is Tickton's critique, basically. And this, and Tickton basically says, well, and the reason why he does this is in the end, there are actually no definable classes because it's non-motor production. So Barrow is forced to, you know, go to these kind of idealistic conclusions. Yeah, I think that's where Tickton may be right. If we're using a means framework, this is more of a transitional stage than a coherent mode of production. Yeah, exactly. And that's why I was kind of pushing against the idea of like recognizable groups of exploiters because it's a it's 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 like you still have elements of the tributary mode of production, but at the same time, it's also you also have this kind of industrialist aspect to it, and so it's a very unique form of you know, whatever mode of production we want to say it is. Let's just put it that I'm, I'm just saying if, if you hold to the thesis that this kind of society could have lasted and that it didn't just for historical reasons, that there wasn't anything necessary about the collapse and you believe that it could have continued, you know, you have to account for exploitation somehow because there's clearly an exploited class and there are consistent winners at the top of the economy. Like it's, it, it wasn't always... It didn't always behave in a proprietarian kind of way, but often a lot of the nepotism, you know, really did end up reproducing like, you know, multi-generational inherited class dynamics. So I just think that like on some level, there's probably some useful way of interrogating the class stuff. And if you have an expanded sociological concept of class, I understand why you go to, you know, domination and this aspect of like skilled labor because from a Marxist standpoint, you know, from in terms of like relations of production, a lot of people at least were arguing that, you know, this is a classless society. But if you look at this and if you're just like a good social scientist, you can't really say that. <laughs> well, you could, you could say it's a classless society in the same way that you say like war communism is communism because it's driving in inflation and that's destroying the money. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that there's it, it, it becomes really semantic at one because I don't want to say that it's not class society because that makes you as an assumption that it's transcended class society. But at the same time, saying that it's a form of class society suggests that it's a mode of production itself that can be defined. And I think that it's really more of a transitionary thing that cannot have continued to reproduce for much longer. I think it's it, it just wasn't a viable, that the Soviet Union basically wasn't able to develop a viable form of reproducing itself as a society. So it was doomed to collapse. 
and China has been able to continue because they've just fallen back on the capitalism as a way. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, if you don't think China is capitalist, then you have to like answer for this. But you know, yeah, we think China's I, capitalist. We think the Soviet Union couldn't couldn't have lasted. So I don't see what the big deal about. Like a lot of people, I think the non-mode of production thesis is like really absurd and non-Marxist, and just dodging the big questions. But I mean, if you understand mode of productions as historical epochs that have their own definable laws of motion that allow for extended reproduction of that system, then the Soviet Union really isn't a mode of production. Well, like a lot of Marxists are just idealists about modes of production and they kind of, it's almost like they figure that there's like a graph and, you know, when you break from one mode of production to the other, you just click into the next essence and that there's not like a, a period where there's just like no truth about the essence of the economy. Like yeah, that's, there's that's just, just like a certain date where it says, all right, this economy now became futile because right. of this political event. Whereas it's really much more interwoven, you know, relations of production and forces of production very often that are slowly displacing each other over time through social conflicts that are very much mediated by different cultural and political actors. Uh, so, yeah, let's talk about that. So do you think we covered uh, subalternity? I mean, I still think the idea is kind of confused because it's like, as Tickton says, it's just a, it's a way for him to try to find the class contradiction without actually defining an economic class. But it's still a very, I think it's an important idea in the sense that it's recognizing a real, it's a very, it's a powerful Marxist humanist critique of the Eastern Bloc countries. Is that it has this, it's developed this bureaucracy that holds back the development of humanity in the same way capitalist relations of production hold back the development of humanity. Well, it becomes like this category he creates of like the subaltern becomes this like vector through which he can look at the system from the standpoint of how it like affects the individual, you know? Yeah. Like it, 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 affect, it, it like oppresses the individual in this said way. And perhaps this like shared like oppression can form like some kind of new revolutionary subject or some and basis. It for... did. It just was nationalism that wanted to restore capitalism. <laughs> yeah. It's sort yeah. of like a version of capital consciousness or something like that. Or like it could even describe the way bureaucracy works in like capitalism, how it alienates people under capitalism too. I, I don't know. This piece just kind of annoyed me because it just get his solutions get really vague and really utopian. And oh, yeah. I wanted something more honestly like ticked in where he kind of gets into mm. the nitty gritty of like how this thing sort of functions. Yeah. Whereas... See, see, his book is actually more so that than less so the political shit. Oh, yeah. I mean, I bet if we read just the chapter on his, like, primary, secondary, tertiary, like, you know, historical materialist thing, like, I'm yeah, sure... If you, read, be, if you like, read, like, the first two-thirds of the book are basically, like, just it's just 400 pages of him going into, the, like, the nitty-gritty of all this stuff, like, right. does. But, yeah, I think his political ideals are too utopian just for the reason of thinking that they're going to be able to create communism in Eastern Germany. But at the same time, like, if, if you don't want, if you want to do something political and you live in the Eastern Bloc and you don't want to just, you know, be a cuck for the, the major regime, who you don't want to be a, a shield for imperialism, what choices are you left but to try to 
think of some way to kind of change the government to be more authentically communist or whatever. You know, I can't really, I, I just can't blame him. No, I mean, he's completely with it between a rock and a hard place. And he's kind of is a victim of the very, you know, I guess like you could say, like lack of access to information that he rails against. Because I think, you know, he is kind of limited in his analysis um, due to like, you know, the fact that he doesn't, have, you know, there's, there isn't complete, you know, intellectual freedom inside of, uh, and that also, of course, in, it directly inhibits their capacity to organize. Yeah. And he also yeah. says their lack of intellectual freedom is also a problem in your ability to develop the economy. Yeah. Because you're closed off from oh, yeah. all of the intellectual, you know, process like, happenings in the rest of the world. So it's, you know, it's. Yeah. Well, you have, you have this weird intractable problem where, you know, you're basically, you're ruling over a bunch of peasants and you can't really give them full, if you want to you know develop the means of production you can't really give them to like full democracy because they're just gonna all vote to keep peasantry going and not pay any taxes and so you at the same time along with the means of production you know part of that is technicians and like the whole intellectual infrastructure needed to you know advance things technologically and that has to develop too but they're in this position where like the principles of you know the soviet government or this you know the the communist party in these areas goes so against like so much of like the social traditions and so forth that are there that they're kind of like in a state of constant siege against most of the population <laughs> so they That's are a really good point so um i kind of lost my train of thought there <laughs> Sorry, is it because I interrupted you? No, no, no. I no. I, I was well, I was like yeah, the cartoon it's... character putting the tracks out in front of me on the cart as I speed along, and I ran out of tracks to put. In front. <laughs> well, it's yeah. What you're saying is that basically you have these deep patriarchal peasant mentalities that are part of the society, and you have these very um... right, which 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 forces them to have this kind of like intellectual. There's like forced intellectual hegemony that leads them to constrict the flow of information, but that hurts yeah. them on the other end because it, it yeah. And, and it's interesting because I have been reading uh, a, a book on, called Peasants and Soviet Power by Mashalou, and it talks about the uh, Stalin period of industrialization. And he says that like during the NEP, the actual authorities of the village were actually still the mirror and the Soviets that were set up in the villages were basically just bureaucratic outposts, and the actual like governance of the city of the villages was still done on this kind of communal basis. So it just shows how much difficulty the state structures had in actually penetrating into agrarian life to transform it out of you know this this more backwards form of patriarchal peasant production. That also had communal aspects. Right. Yeah, that was an interesting thing that was in the background here that I'm sure he goes into more in the book. He makes a couple mentions of patriarchy and the nuclear family as like, I'm, I'm imagining patriarchy forms like one of the primary class formations for him. Like I'm filling in the blanks, of course, um, because I haven't read the big book. But yeah, he lists patriarchy as one of the key social divisions and in the material base of society that constitute class society. Of the first one, of the community stage, right? Yeah, the and then community. it's the mental manual division of labor. 
Yeah, the second stage is mental manual division of labor and the state. Yes, in the whole logic of the territorial state. And then private property is the tertiary layer, the third layer. And I like this approach so much because it gets you out of this mindset of everything is capital, is bad as capitalism. <laughs> yeah, and totally. Simply, and by simply abolishing capitalism, it's, it gets rid of all the other bad things. It's, because I think social reproduction theory actually tries to do this, is try to tie everything to capitalism way too much. When actually a communist revolution has to do more than just abolish capitalism than simply negate yeah. the value form. Because I think they actually were successfully able to do this in the Eastern Bloc. What they yeah. actually had to do is transform these deeper divisions of labor that go into the, that are part of the earlier class systems that are still reproduced under capitalism. And that's yeah. really the more difficult aspect of communism and the transition. Actually, you know, socializing the commanding heights of the economy and taking out, you know, the biggest capitalists is pretty easy if you have political power. But actually transforming small producers and, and bureaucrats and intelligentsia and production itself in, in a way that will allow for a sort of harmonious free association of labor, that's a whole other yeah it's like a ball game it's a more it's very different yeah it's, it's not just a world historical task it's like to butcher a phrase you're like overthrowing the conspiracy against the human race you're like changing a fundamental condition of human life yeah exactly you're undoing years and years of class oppression don't you think like increased communication technology almost kind of automatically solves this problem now because Why? you can basically Why? disseminate like any, you know what I'm saying? Like any extent of it. They can pretty much teach anybody anything on the internet. Yeah, but yeah, but they, but they might be too domesticated and warped. That was another thing I wanted to get into is that yeah, this guy's, this guy's like an East German Kamat. You know what I mean? Like he has a theory of like capitalism or I'm sorry, he's not talking about capitalism. He's talking about the, the, He's talking about East Germany and he's talking about Eastern Europe, but he's saying that this does something to people's consciousness so that they yeah. kind of can't fight back. And that reminds me of Kamat's theory of domestication. And it's interesting. It's interesting that they take the same path, including the deep green and including the weird fashy shit. But like uh, Jake, what I was going to say was, I mean, yeah, you're right that so many people have access to the internet, but like someone sent me the actual statistics of literacy in the United States, and it's embarrassingly low. So it's very depressing when you really think about it. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, like, intellectual life doesn't have the same social role that it used to. There was a time where intellectual life was basically, you know, fast-tracked to the, to the middle class. Or it was even at some points considered like a universal social good. And yeah. people thought humanistically that, you know, you could learn things and make the world a better place. None of that shit's really true now. So how, here's an idea. Let's take this whole idea of subalternization, but take it from East Germany to capitalism and kind of look at maybe how it applies to capitalism. That there's this yeah. subalternization of humanity caused by the class relations of our society. Yeah, so Kamat's theory just extends this to industrial society as a whole. And repressive consciousness is what he would, I think, end up calling like a... I don't know. He has some. This guy has a, some weird consciousness language. So it's, but so it's kind of like Wilhelm Reich's idea of like internalizing yeah. oppression and like desiring to seek with an oppressor because of like internalized norms that are socialized in you. Yeah, it's a 
kind of a, the it's like a the Hegelian Western Marxist thing about reification. Um, yeah. Actually, what's interesting is that Barrow seems pretty literate in like Western Marxist critical theory. He's clearly taking off from Althusser, which is why he calls stuff like the state ideological and superstructural, which is dumb as fuck to me. But you know, dude's well read at least. I mean, if we look at if we try and transplant this concept of subalternity to the Western world, like this is actually where Guy Debord's concept of like diffuse and concentrated spectacle comes yes. in. That's another person I was thinking of was Debord. Because basically you in like both forms like presuppose different like sets of responsibility, right? Like the the nationalized like Soviet state that basically controls the entire economy has its entire ideology like fixated on that sort of like focal point right whereas in the western world it's diffuse and you have all these different firms and the areas where people get fucked over is where essentially there's this kind of almost neglect where nobody's responsible for this portion or this sector of society right or this like aspect and so you know in the soviet union yeah you're fixed within this social hierarchy you're even fixed where you can live and work and the western world you don't have that those same limitations but what will fix you will be will we'll fix you in a place or in a job or in a shitty situation will be you know the sort of lack of options available to you because you know there's no f- particular firm or anything that's responsible for you and you can't get a job or or whatever what makes diffuse like more insidious in some ways and more effective is precisely because there's no one thing that you can point to for responsibility so everyone just points at you yeah, that's what I was going to say, is in the Soviet Union, it's a lot easier to point to an individual bureaucrat who's fucking you over and, you know, to point the individual, you know, cop in the bread line that, you know, is an asshole. Well, because the, like, like the, the Soviet system claims to be like this totalizing thing, we're basically, if we're not in communism, we're at least in socialism, and man is c- taking control over the material, over the... Uh, methods and means of his own reproduction whereas that same kind of like totalizing ideology doesn't really exist in the western world because we don't have no one person has control over everything yeah. because it's well, just, yeah, the, the ideology is just pragmatism and it's not pragmatic to have one total like to, totalizing universalist narrative anymore it's more right. effective to kind of just have a plethora of different narratives all competing with each other in a way. Not, not, not even a matter of effectiveness. It's just what comes out of the kind of society. One of a, a, to keep recalling Amin because it was brilliant, one of Amin's points is that tributary societies have a, a metaphysical elaborated system, whereas I think it's clear in capitalism you end up with the more diffuse autonomous, you know, rhizomatic kind of hydra thing where you can cut off its head and it'll appear somewhere else. And it takes many forms. Well, yeah, and I was was about the whole Wilhelm Reich thing where, you know, you have this kind of patriarchal authority and submission to state and boss authority socialized in the people directly. I think that's more fitting for earlier modes of capitalism and other class societies because today there's kind of a new spirit of capitalism that isn't so much as regimented work mode but this idea that you're free in all a multitude of different ways but they're all it's all freedom to be exploited but at the same time there's a multiple different ways you can be exploited and whatnot it's like you know as milton Friedman calls it it's freedom to choose but this freedom is just a very limited form of freedom and 
we almost can't even articulate why we're not free sometimes because logically according to the internalized ideology of the system we already are free and there's nothing that's directly dominating us but at the same time we're constantly being dominated by the market in various ways well i guess i'm just fucked up right that's the whole point that's subalternity like well i guess i'm just sort of dependent on this stuff and i you know i could be better but it is what it is i basically don't have the support and it would be really i don't know if i can yeah i mean it's just it's 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 a kind of political nihilism like i was saying where you are so reduced to scraping by where any kind of greater project of changing society just sees it as a distraction too yeah i mean it's deeper than it's deeper than political nihilism. It's it is the this is really the emergent mode. This is the emergent like morality of an industrial society. Like all, like it's it really empties life of its content and joy. <laughs> like it's it's the fact that politics dies with it is is almost negligible compared to what else dies with with this, you know. Boy, you really you really have been reading Teddy K. I'm just saying like I I do think I do think the levels like the what I've been reading is, you know, my, like my interpersonal life and reflecting on all the relationships I've had over the course of my life and thinking about all the kinds of personality disorders. I'm starting to read into the analytical literature about that. Oh, the kind of personality oh, disorders that I've seen that reproduced because I'm trying to get out. <laughs> help, help, S-O-S. Like I'm trying to get out. So the point is, is like the kinds of pathologies that industrial society produces is tremendous and that's not to glorify you know like uh but the point is politics is the way out of all this stuff that's right being right on. however it is also one of the most alienated parts of society yes exactly it's the it's the worst most disgusting alienated yes part of society and it's brutal and terrible but it's also the only way out and that's just a contradiction of the state right humanity and society i mean and by the way we we do have like our own stasi who have i think gone a long way towards like making the realm of the political just that you know mm -hmm. the fbi was yeah. basically created to like make war on commies essentially yeah like i mean people talk about east germany like it was you know the, the one funny thing is yeah she doesn't talk about the secret police much in here and a lot of I wonder why an anti well yeah I mean obviously he's trying to avoid persecution but also like it's just we're as surveilled as East Germany was probably yeah. more like, probably more so we're more surveilled yeah. than East yeah, Germany technology is more effective exactly yeah exactly it's 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 and, but we don't think we we see East Germany and think of it as this totalitarian you know police state but really right. we're more policed and more controlled than people in East Germany yeah. were. Well, there and is, we, and there's lots of a pretext too, because like we're basically afraid of like a handful of Muslims riding around Yemen with a toy, the back of a Toyota truck. <laughs> yeah, well, East Whereas, Germany, they had the whole like fucking apparatus of imperialism and ex-fascist fucking deal with. It it's it's weirdly voluntary. Like you go on social media, you post about yourself, and deep down, you know the government is watching you. You know someone is watching you every sort of like edgy thing that you say online, you know, it's going into some kind of government file or whatever, or being like stored off and you know, it can all be used against you eventually, but like it's all voluntary because you keep on doing it because all your friends are doing it and everyone else is. Yeah. 
How many collective hours do they have of you beating off? Throw it on a hard drive somewhere. It's a terrifying uh, thought. It's also a terrifying thought to think that it doesn't even matter if they collect all of this information because all of this won't. It's just the, our, our society is so atomized and incapable of political change that, like, it doesn't even matter, you know, because you can hate the government as much as you right. want. But unless you're a wing nut who's going to go shoot up a school, we don't really care because we are in control and we're not being threatened. Well, it's that's why. That's why people are so cavalier is because they're totally powerless about it. There's nothing at stake, and so it just becomes points for him. And, and, and when the CIA invented, like, identity politics in the 70s, <laughs> like, that was the final death knell of organization <laughs> in America. Okay, Paul Cockshot. <laughs> I, was thinking, I, I was thinking Angela Nagel, but... Mm. Same thing, just, you know, not as, uh, not as smart. It's red, it's, it's red Toryism, as they call it. That's what I want to watch. I want to watch the Sargon and Paul Cockshot debate. Well, did that happen? <laughs> no, it hasn't, no. but it should. Oh, no. that, would, that would form like a fucking singularity of intelligence. Yeah, think, would I that think... be a debate? Would they just be like, "Yeah, trannies"? Am I right? Like, I mean, that's that would, that's where they would find common ground, but the the rest of it would be like. No, no, I well, think, actually, I have some there's actually, here there's about... actually kind of a positivist aspect of Cockshot where I could actually think the only person who could convince Sargon to communism would be Paul Cockshot. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Oh, man. Like, like, we, we can take on bourgeois decadence together. Come on. <laughs> you have a red-brown alliance. Um, <laughs> yeah, that would be the red-brown alliance. Jesus. I mean, but Sargon isn't no, even... No, it would be red-yellow because you kept... Yeah, he's you, know, you uh, kept now. I mean, I guess... Paul, yeah, isn't it boring right? grandpa. Yeah. And it, anyway, detour. Um, no, that was funny. Yeah, I mean, I, that was kind of my big thing was like, yes, he, I mean, his critiques of like the alienation of the society. Yeah, I mean, I broadly agree with him from like a humanist standpoint, but I just don't see how this is politically actionable, and it just seems to kind of ignore like the broader like geohistorical and like geostrategic kind of bind that this whole thing is in. You know? Yes, and that's evidenced by when he basically says it would be acceptable to ally with U.S. imperial and or just imperialism in general to, you know, if it was for the benefit of the the cause to create communism. I mean, just this is just basically sending out an SOS as well. Like they're he's a decade they're a decade from collapse. This is fucked. This is over, basically. Well, they could have won. They could have won their one back in in like the mid '90s, but actually, uh, American Aid actually made that uh, interfering in the uh, Russian election. Mm. Oh my God! What are, I mean, United way, States interfered in the Russian election. I mean, yeah. the, no. The point. The point is, either way, the USSR was going to change, even if it wasn't going oh, yeah, to collapse. Yeah. Even if it was possible to kind of prevent the collapse, it would have. There would have been major changes. But the, the point is, is that, you know, yeah, so yeah, this is an SOS, but it doesn't help by saying that, you know, we will work with the Western imperialist. Well, no. You know, because think about it. That is how the actual revolts against Stalinism ended up becoming the restoration of capitalism. Look at solidarity. You know, that started out as a real bottom-up working class movement against the abuses of the Polish state. And became controlled by Catholic traditionalists and the bankers of Goldman Sachs. So, I mean, it just, it shows that, you know, it's this, this hope that you can call for help from NATO and that they're going to, like the Hungarian revolutions had, you know, it's just, you know, it's very naive. And 
sure, you may be so used to being lied to by the bureaucracy that, hey, maybe their lies right. about the imperialists all being a bunch right, of monsters right. and greedy profiteers are also lies. But it just so happens that those aren't actually lies. <laughs> that yeah. they are a bunch of fucking greedy monsters and profiteers who will not come to help you against you know tyranny but just create a new form of capitalist tyranny yeah and as soon as as soon as like all the communist forces are wiped out or neutered they proceed to elect like incre increasingly insane like right-wing leaders in every major capitalist power i mean just and look this... at like what the restoration of capitalism in the post-eastern bloc has become it's become a fascist uh, hellhole well yeah. and there was the there was the largest there was when like the Soviet Union collapsed, it was like the largest drop in life expectancy um, anywhere in like the 20th century. Uh, yeah. And that's saying some shit. It's just so Massive grim. Massive amounts of people killing themselves because so all of a sudden the entire lifeline that they had had been replaced by this visible hand that wasn't even. Mm. They just. They actually, like, if you read the actual plan that they had for Russia. They were basically saying there's going to be no compromises. There's going to be no partial nationalizations. There's going to be no workers' control schemes. There's going to be no welfare schemes or whatever. It's just going to be complete privatization, giving everyone shares in the companies they worked for, and just letting the market work its way out. They basically kind of tried to actually turn it into an in-cap utopia. Everything's going according to plan. And yet, that's, now that's we so have brutal. Daddy Putin to keep everyone safe and stable from the oligarchs. That's so brutal. And, like, I don't care how you feel about Stalinism or even, like, the, you know, the kind of, like, bourgeois alienation and, like, bourgeois-style state without bourgeois liberty that you ended up with in the late Soviet Union. You have to see the collapse as a humanitarian tragedy. You can't pretend it was, like, a... A glorious revolution against totalitarianism it just doesn't it's not going to read yeah. like that in in the history of the 20th century it's, not, it, it's, it's, it's just it's going to be part of the greater tragedy of 20th century socialism which was that you had you know a true movement of the october revolution I mean, and like the revolution it, that were inspired by it to overcome capitalism but it wasn't able to overcome capitalism i mean what killed and, more um stalin's purges or like the death rattle of the Soviet Union and like that transition in from like non moda production into capitalism because honestly I'm leaning towards like that transition from like the Soviet Union into Russia into just norm normal capitalist Russia killing. I mean, it's hard. It would be hard. It would be hard to. It'd be hard to beat Stalin. I mean, he, he's like it's a world record holder. Well, that's the point is that Stalin had like a direct like apparatus of like murder and coercion and violence and famines and stuff. Whereas under capitalism, it's harder to say how many people have died that didn't need to die because of capitalism. But you could say that it's comparable. Like the, the collapse of the Eastern Bloc was basically just one huge primitive accumulation fest. If you really think about it. Gorbachev is still alive, isn't he? Yeah. Let's go let's go to his house and beat him up. Uh, I mean <laughs> the thing we'll, is we'll, no, really, we'll, no, yeah. here's what we'll do. Here's what we'll do. Let's smack him around. We'll 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 steal we'll steal a Pizza Hut delivery uniform. That's right. That's we'll, fucking we'll, right. We'll, we'll we'll dress up like we're bringing him some Pizza Hut. When he <laughs> the door. 
beat, yeah. we'll, we'll beat the shit out of him. Yeah, we'll be beat like, the shit yeah. out of him with the box, force feed him the crust first. Yeah, yeah. Hey, you lost an empire, bitch. This yeah. is this is for all the people you let down. Yeah. Then, See, uh, that's the problem, though, is that like the call to restore the USSR is kind of a chauvinist slogan too, because USSR was kind of based on the Russian Empire, and so calling to restore the USSR is kind of like appealing to great it's Russian. Kind of fashy. Yeah, exactly. It's and, um, the like. Sparts, and I, I know you hate them, but like they actually have a good article explaining why they don't use this slogan because it's. Well, no, 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 no. I, I don't. I don't hate the Sparks. They're pretty interesting in some ways. And yeah, I mean, the, the unfortunate history is that the unfortunate contemporary fact is that no matter how you feel about you know how different Stalinism, even at its heights, was from you know fascism, at the end of the day, the call to restore 20th century socialism has like totally rhymes with a fascist politic, and it's you know that's got oh, yeah, a terrible just... taste in your mouth. Just, this is why, like, the line between, like, tankies and Nazbols is so hard to tell sometimes. Hey, but, okay, but let's be real. Let's be real. If you woke up in a couple years and you turn on your turn on your phone and there was a news alert saying that the Communist Party won elections in Russia, oh, they yeah. were back in charge, and they were putting their, they're like, baby, it's not going to be the Soviet Empire. I'd be very skeptical gonna... because the, the existing Soviet, like the existing Russian Communist Party fucking sucks. We're, we're going to do things the right way. Don't you know that you would put on the Soviet <laughs> yeah. national anthem and you would cry? You would cry. I'm not going to lie. I can't go into work today. I got to get my shit together. Yeah, I got to book a plane yeah, ticket. I mean, all right, all right. Okay, I mean not fine. me. I'll but... give you that, but like, like and and you know some people might be like so Donald, why do you really consider yourself a Soviet defensist? And it's really just because of the utter collapse, of crisis and disaster that was the collapse of the Soviet Union and the victory of. The I mean, US I don't think you, I don't think you need to be a defensist. I say that I don't think you need to be a defensist. Well, that's what all it means, though. But that's all defensist is. No, it's not. It's really it, not. That, it's, no, you you defend. It, well, you know, like I mean, I guess it's a. It's an ambiguous term, but I think when people mean Soviet defensism, they mean defending the Soviet Union as the form of the worker state, like specifically, not just not just, just not just defending it as some abstractly. Well, it's okay, like you well, know, no, defending no, the you, upholding the Soviet it, Union. No, it means defending it from capitalist restoration. That's like literally what it means for Trotsky. Like he thinks, like his argument is that. The line of the workers' movement should be to defend the Soviet Union from capitalist restoration while promoting right. a workers' political revolution. Because it's a degenerated worker state for Trotsky. And he never yeah, but, lets go yeah, of that thesis. Yeah, but you don't have to believe that it's a degenerated worker state to say that it's still like militarily preferable to defend against per, per, imperialism. Perhaps not, but that is the historical line so i guess i guess it's it's abstract we're, we're making we live in the 21st century we got to make new theories to understand things you know we can't just you know copy trots yeah we can't just defend a country that found the 1990s for you know old reasons i mean that's that's but that's my point is is that it was an unmitigated disaster when it collapsed and that's why yeah of course i think the, the line of the trotskyist of supporting of not not supporting of of being for the military defense of the Soviet Union in the end was the correct line. And that in the end, the Soviet Union did promote more progressive ends than the United States did in the Cold War. 
Depends on what you're talking about, but yeah. Unless you want to make the argument that the Soviet Union and the United States were just two competing imperialist powers. And you're right, but it depends what you're talking about. Like, for example, like if you look at Ethiopia, the Soviets totally did back the wrong people. But then yeah. if you look at, for example, you know, Nicaragua, you know, that's a different story. Well, the 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 thing is, is the thing is that the Soviet the Soviet Union's the Soviet Union's relationship with colonized countries is or like uh you know third world countries is like way more ambiguous but ultimately i do think that fighting a series of proxy wars in other people's countries is you know it does kind of look like that don't it i mean i don't know if it's imperialism but it looks a lot like an empire dynamic it it, it looks like it only on the surface value on, on oh, okay surface space, well, I guess. i'm glad to hear that no, it's just it's not imperialism. To you know, was it was it imperialism in Angola when Cuba and the Soviet Union sent troops to help the national liberation movement there? Like, how is that imperialism? That's not the only thing that they did. I mean, then what what would you say they did that was imperialism? I mean, was invading Afghanistan not imperialism? Well, uh, liberating the Afghani people. Yeah, like supporting the bourgeois revolution that happened in Afghanistan. Like, they were, they did it against their economic interests. Like, they did not actually want to invade Afghanistan initially. Plus, they they had weapons of mass destruction. Okay, that's not true either. But what happened was, if you actually want to understand what happened in Afghanistan, we could talk about this. But. Like, if you think it was imperialism, like, I don't know, you're using either, like, a, a definition of imperialism, that's whenever a state invades another state. Well, Donald, I don't really care if it's imperialism. Like, I think it, it's, like, an empire. I mean, you can say it's an empire, I guess. I mean, it, it, is, then... it is oriental despotism, so... <laughs> <laughs> Are you, like, I would say that it was Russian-Ovenist and that, you know, it had national oppression... But I just think if you look at what the modern phenomena of imperialism, of competition between well, capitalists... Th- that's capitalist. Order. But there were empires yeah. before capitalism. So I don't really yeah, give a shit. I think we're way off topic. That's it for this week. The episode there just kind of trailed off into this debate between Donald and Lexi over whether the USSR could have been considered imperialist. Um, the debate never really got resolved. It just kind of went back and forth and trailed off. Even beyond what you heard here. It's certainly interesting, and I considered leaving it in, but because it was kind of ad hoc and unresolved, I decided to cut it. And I think that's something that we'll have to revisit later. think too I don't have a firm stance on whether the USSR was imperialist or not I suspect on some level part of the answer would depend on context both in terms of what year it was and you know what particular political relationship between countries that you were talking about but that's just my two cents
If you'd like to get a hold of us, you can email us at swampsidechats at gmail.com or send us a message on Facebook or Twitter or wherever we currently have some kind of web presence. We'll probably have to build a website at some point, but that's something we have to get around to doing. If you'd like to support the show, you can uh, share our episodes, share them with your sect, share them with, uh, with your followers, your social media friends, or whoever. Or you can uh, straight, us, straight up send us some money through PayPal, or donate to our Patreon. PayPal is the same as our email, swampsidechats at gmail.com. And the Patreon is, well, you can find it on Patreon. One of the, um, one of the bonuses or rewards or whatever you call it for donation to the Patreon is access to our Discord. That's a lot of fun. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.